<laughs> Feel free to, you know, make little fans of paper and fan yourself and everything. It's good to see everybody here today. It was awesome to have so many of you here. I don't know the last time we had that many people actually join us for the music time, and it's just awesome to hear everyone singing together. Uh, it's a huge, huge blessing. I'm very grateful for it. So today, we are going to be continuing in our, uh, the story of Elijah. Oh, sorry, I forgot to uh, dismiss the kids to church, so to Sunday school. Yeah, actually, Mike forgot. That was your job. Yep. So go ahead, kids. <laughs> go to Sunday school. <laughs> wow, it's awesome. It's like half of everybody in this room just left. That's how many kids we have here. It's awesome. Thank you, Doug, for the reminder. <laughs> so we're, we're continuing Elijah today. Uh, this is our third week so far in Elijah, and I'm planning on wrapping up um, the story next week. This is one of my favorite sections in the Old Testament. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, you, you know that. I've been just really excited to share it with you. It's been really fun for me to study it and yeah, you know that I get pretty excited about Elijah's whole story. We've established, you know, that the Elijah is not just a fun story to study. He's also one of the most significant prophets of all the prophets, second really only to Moses. And his story bears significance not just on its own, but in the larger scale narrative of the whole Old Testament and even into the New Testament. And the passage that we're going to look at today is no exception to how you know, significant it is. Even though last week we looked at what's probably the most epic and uh, climactic chapter of the story, I think this next passage is actually my personal favorite. Um, and it's, it's still pretty dramatic and theatrical. We, we'll still even get some more fire at one point. Uh, and the message is, is powerful. We're going to be picking up the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. But I do want to do a, a quick recap of what's happened so far. Um, and I, am, I just kind of want to make sure that the whole story is fresh on the brain going into this, because I think that's, that's important. So first of all, just remember we're in the, the time of the kings. Uh, after the judges, before the exile, I'll pull up that timeline slide again there. It's after King David, after King Solomon, and it's after Israel had divided into two separate kingdoms with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the book of 1 Kings documents all the kings that came after Solomon until the exile, and it kind of goes back and forth between those two kingdoms, between Israel and Judah, and it lists all the kings who ruled, whether they were good kings or bad kings, and the vast majority of them were bad kings, especially in Israel. And just to give you a sense of where we fall in the story, here's a genealogy and even if you can't read all the names on there, at the very top right is uh, David and Solomon. And then soon after that is where you get the split. And you have on the left, um, Israel, and on the right, Judah. And those are all the, the different kings who reigned between you know, Solomon and the exile. And Ahab, where, we're gonna, you know, where we find in the story, is almost kind of right in the middle. He's the sixth one down. Uh, he's the sixth king after Jeroboam. Um, who Jeroboam is the one who led the revolt and the secession of Israel from Judah. Uh, and he's kind of 
surrounded by a bunch of bad kings, but he stands out as being especially bad. He's worse than all the kings who came before him. You remember, you might have been here for these little guys, (laughs) when Mike looked at some of the kings leading up to the exile and listing the good kings and bad kings, we had these fun little graphics. So I had to pull that in there. He's an especially bad king. And on, on top of that, he marries this woman, Jezebel, who's just as bad as Ahab or worse. And he's very, she was very motivated against Yahweh, the God of Israel. And she tries to kill all the prophets of Yahweh while supporting hundreds of prophets from Baal and Asherah, the gods of her people. She influences and incites Ahab and the rest of Israel to follow and worship these other gods instead of Yahweh. And then in chapter 17, Elijah shows up to confront King Ahab. And Elijah doesn't have much introduction other than where he's from. He shows up kind of seemingly out of nowhere, but he speaks to Ahab. And right off the bat, his words that he says to Ahab are just full of authority and power. He says, As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. So Elijah claims to stand in the presence of God. And he makes this declaration in the name of Yahweh that they're about to enter into years of drought and famine, which will end only by Elijah's command. And that's exactly what happens. And in the meantime, Elijah becomes a fugitive. He's public enemy number one. And so God has him go into hiding near a water source. He provides for him miraculously, sending ravens to feed him. And then when the water source dries up, God sends him to a Gentile widow in Jezebel's own homeland, no less. I don't know if I even mentioned that, but where he goes to live with this widow is Jezebel's hometown, and it's a hotbed of Baal worship. But he provides Elijah with refuge there in that of all places, and then miraculously provides, again for them, with a supply of flour and oil that never runs out, but is always just enough to survive. And then when the widow's son dies, Elijah prays over him, and God brings him back to life. And so the widow witnessed that Yahweh has power even over death, and she confessed faith really in who Elijah claimed to be, which is really faith in who Yahweh is, because Elijah claimed to be this representative of the all-powerful God of the universe, and she saw that was true. That was all chapter 17. Uh, And in the meantime, three years go by, and Ahab is searching desperately for Elijah. And in chapter 18, God says to Elijah to go present yourself to King Ahab and tell him I'm going to send rain soon. Which is good news, but Ahab is still not going to be happy to see him. Uh, And in the beginning of chapter 18, we get that awesome little interaction between Obadiah and Elijah. Obadiah is a prophet. He has his own book and everything. Um, It's a short book. Uh, But then we find out here that he's in charge of the palace during Ahab's reign. And he's secretly able to save a hundred of Yahweh's prophets during Jezebel's genocide. She just tries to wipe out all of Yahweh's prophets. But Obadiah saves a hundred of them. And he's just an awesome dude. He's somehow a man who greatly fears Yahweh. He's greatly devoted to God. And yet he's also serving as the second-hand man to the most evil king Israel had ever, and queen that Israel had ever seen. So when Obadiah does meet Elijah, he freaks out. He like bows down, and then he freaks out. He says, Ahab's going to kill me. But then eventually, Elijah tells him to go and get Ahab. Obadiah goes and gets Ahab. And Elijah commands Ahab to summon all of the people of Israel 
along with all the prophets of Baal, to the top of Mount Carmel. And that's, you know, we looked at that whole story last week with Mount Carmel, where he proposes a contest to the people to determine whether uh, God, the, the God of Israel, Yahweh, or Baal, was the true God and worth worshiping. And they, the people agreed to this contest. They each got an altar and wood and a bowl to sacrifice on the altar, but no fire. So they had to pray to their, each to their own God to provide the fire. And whichever one came through would be declared the winner. Of course, the prophets of Baal tried all, as hard as they could all day long to summon fire in the name of Baal, and Elijah mocked them and mocked Baal, and they tried harder, and they cut themselves and danced around like crazy, and nothing happened. They got no response. Then Elijah called the people over to him, and he prepared his altar. He had to repair it because Jezebel had torn it down. But he repairs the altar, and then he digs a trench around it and has them soak the whole thing in water. The whole trench even fills up around, around the altar with water. And then he just prayed. No ritual, no antics, just a simple, powerful prayer. And in summary, his prayer was, Yahweh, prove who you are and that I am your servant so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you are bringing them back to you. So the whole purpose of this entire thing was to prove who Yahweh is and to show that out of his love and mercy and out of faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Moses, and David, that he would once again redeem adulterous Israel back to himself. And, you know, of course, Yahweh did respond. You know, he responded immediately with this rush of holy fire consuming everything, the wood and the bull on the altar and the, the the stones and the dust from the stones and even all the water in the trench were completely consumed, leaving no question as to who the winner of that contest was. So the people acknowledged that Yahweh was God, and Elijah had them round up the prophets of Baal at the valley at the bottom of the mountain, killed them all. So it was this massive victory for Yahweh and a massive failure for Baal. And it was an act really of redemption and mercy proving himself to his people and reaching out to restore them to him. And in the meantime, there still hadn't been any rain. So towards the end of the chapter, Elijah goes back up to the top of the mountain and prays. He has a servant running back and forth to check the horizon at the sea seven times. Eventually, he finally sees this tiny cloud coming up on the horizon. And Elijah tells his servant to rush back to Ahab and and take their chariots home because he said, they, you know, go faster, you'll be overtaken by the storm, because that little cloud then quickly became this massive, tremendous rainstorm. <laughs> and because Elijah didn't have a chariot, God gave him this temporary super speed, and he sprinted faster than all the king's chariots all the way back to the gates of Jezreel, uh, which was about 17 miles away. Just um, <laughs> a crazy fun way to end chapter 18. And that's where we left off last week. I know I just kind of like covered a whole lot of like both sermons in one little introduction uh, recap, but I think it's important to just kind of have all that whole story front loaded in our, our brains as we're going into this. And that's where we left, left off with Ahab rushing home, Elijah beating him there, um, and Ahab, you know, he was with Elijah while all of this happened. He saw Elijah destroy the prophets of Baal. He saw him pray for rain and 
Jezebel, though, in the meantime, has been home this whole time. She has no idea yet about all that's happened, uh, and the news is not going to go over well. So let's uh, read the beginning of chapter 19 and see how it plays out. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. So Jezebel is just furious when she hears about what Elijah has done. And clearly she's not swayed, though, in her allegiance to her gods or moved to repentance for her sin. No, she's doubling down and she swears vengeance on Elijah. And I think it's actually kind of ironic. She, she swears by the gods who were just proven worthless and powerless. She says, may the gods strike me down. But she worships the gods of Baal and Asherah, and it's just kind of an empty threat in light of all of what just happened, which just really reveals how stubborn she is. It really shows her character. But she is going to do everything in her power to kill Elijah, and she does have some power still. So he's going to go on the run. Again, in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and left his servant there. So he goes to Judah. It points out he ran far enough away that now he's out of Ahab's jurisdiction. So remember, Ahab is king of Israel, not Judah. So they would presumably be at least a little bit safer here. And I'm guessing that's why Elijah left his servant there, so he wasn't leaving him hanging in imminent danger of Jezebel's threats. But then Elijah continues on his own in verse 4. He went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Yahweh, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, Elijah, this is... First of all, does this whole scene sound kind of familiar? It's pretty, it sounds a lot like the end of the book of Jonah, doesn't it? And Jonah doesn't actually come up until a little bit later in the story. If you look back at that timeline, he comes a little bit after Elijah. But if you were just to draw a picture of what Jonah looked like at the end of the book of Jonah, uh, after preaching to Nineveh, it would look just like this. The prophet sitting under a tree, complaining to God, so depressed and exasperated that he just begs to die. I mean, these prophets can be so dramatic sometimes, can't they? But to be fair to Elijah, I will say that his situation is a little bit different than Jonah's. And now this is still seen by most people as kind of Elijah's one weak point in the story. It's his one failing, if you will, as a prophet. It's this kind of pouting that he shows in this chapter or complaining. And it's true, as great of a prophet that Elijah was, he wasn't a perfect human, and not all of his behavior is model behavior. Okay, this is not a prayer to to model your prayers after. However, if we're going to compare him to Jonah, we just have to realize that Jonah was pouting because Nineveh repented and because he didn't have enough shade where he wanted to be comfortable enough to watch Yahweh destroy Nineveh. Whereas... Elijah was pouting because Israel had not repented, and because as a direct result of their sin, he was now on the run for his life, starving in the wilderness. 
So it's, it's a little bit different, and I think a bit more excusable, or at least it's a little better reason to be upset than Jonah had. He, along with the people of Israel, had just witnessed what Jonah really had hoped to witness, which is this glorious, holy manifestation of God's power and victory over his enemies. And yet, at a large scale and in the long term, it still really didn't change anything. Jezebel didn't repent. Ahab didn't repent. Israel ultimately didn't repent. So from a human perspective, I think it's understandable that Elijah just sort of collapses into this profound depression. And from his perspective, God's methods and God's purposes had failed. If he didn't see it as God's failure, and with good, you know, Jewish theology, he wouldn't see it as God's failure, but then he'd have to see it as his own failure. And either way, enough, it was enough for him to just completely give up hope. And you have to realize, too, that he's run. That whole run uh, was approximately 125 miles, plus another full day's journey, it says, however long, however far it was, uh, into the wilderness. And that was all in less than 24 hours. And now he's all by himself. So at this point, he's just utterly exhausted, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He's broken. But God's going to meet him in that place of brokenness. Verse 5, he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of Yahweh came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So yet again, God provides for Elijah in this miraculous way. An angel ministers to him. He's touched twice by this divine presence. And the first time he wakes up, he finds this food and water, he eats, and just goes right back to sleep. It's just how exhausted he was. So the angel comes again, he tells him to eat more, or else he won't have enough strength for the journey ahead. So either, you know, Yahweh is going to be sending him on a journey, or just simply knows that he's about to take this journey. And this is the opposite of what Elijah had just been begging for the night before. He came here begging to just die and be done with it, and instead God is basically saying, nope, I'm not done with you, and then nourishing him and strengthening him for the next journey. So second time, the angel comes, in verse 8, he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But Yahweh said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> All right, so I'm going to back up a little bit. So this is another case of supernatural intervention or provision, this food somehow this one meal was enough to give him energy for a journey on foot that lasted 40 days and 40 nights but this journey was to none other than the mount sinai and i, I just want to talk about this for a minute and some of your translations might say mount horeb uh, that's the hebrew word that's used there and horeb and sinai are used interchangeably uh, throughout the old testament they both refer to the same mountain uh, and this would have been 
probably about a 200-mile journey. You know, no one really knows exactly where this location uh, would be today, but it, the, the general region would have probably been about a 200-mile journey. So why would Elijah be so determined to make such a journey? What's so significant about this mountain? Why is it called the mountain of God? So Sinai or Horeb is the name, but then it's referred to as the mountain of God. Because throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, uh, and this story included, Mount Sinai is portrayed really as this intersection between heaven and earth. It's like the Garden of Eden where God meets with humans intimately and profoundly. So first it was on Mount Sinai that Moses met with God in the burning bush. The presence of God was represented there by fire, though not an all-consuming fire, right? It's kind of funny because it was in the bush, and the bush didn't burn up. But it was there in that encounter that God revealed his personal divine name to Moses. He said, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. That's in Exodus 3.15. So it's this place of just profound divine revelation, first of all. And then later in the story, it was where Moses brought the people of Israel after escaping from Egypt. They camped out at the base of the mountain, and Moses went up the mountain multiple times to meet with God. It's almost like he was just kind of taking trips to God's office to have meetings with him. And at one point, the whole mountain was just covered in smoke and fire, and Yahweh's presence descended on the mountain in just this display of power. The whole mountain shook violently, and God spoke in thunder. It was a spectacular display. And it was there that God gave the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law to Moses. And it was there that Israel accepted Yahweh's covenant, entering into this binding agreement like a marriage that they would stay faithful to God forever. And again, the glory of Yahweh descended on the mountain, and the summit at one point was just ablaze with, it says, an all-consuming fire, and there was this cloud all around the mountain so that people would be shielded from the glory of God. And it was there that they received instructions for building the tabernacle, which was a tent that would represent God's presence. It was kind of a mobile version of what would eventually be the temple. And again, just full of Garden of Eden imagery, and it functioned as God's designated meeting spot and place of worship. It was also there, you know, while Moses was meeting with God, getting all this information, that the people got impatient, they got bored, they decided to make a golden calf, an idol to worship, and they broke their covenant vows basically on their wedding night. And it was there that Moses, as a result, had to intercede on behalf of Israel, begging God to spare them. And it was there that Moses asked God to reveal his presence to him in his full glory. And he does, even though he doesn't let Moses look directly in his face, he passes before him. Yahweh passes before Moses and covers Moses' face with his hand to protect him. And he declares his own name, Yahweh. He declares his compassion and his mercy and love and faithfulness. So it's just this massive moment of revelation from which Moses then returns physically transformed. His face is glowing and it terrifies everybody. He has to wear a veil to cover up the glory of God shining through him. So I know that that was kind of a long tangent on Moses, but it's just important to realize the significance of Mount Sinai and realize it's, you know, the mountain of God represents a set of these important ideas, the covenant, the law, revelation of God, 
And that's more important so much than the actual exact physical location. Uh, after all, if you realize, you know, the people were never told to make pilgrimages or to worship at Mount Sinai. They were told to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, which is also built on a hill and had full of garden imagery. Um, but it was never, even in that case, whether it was the temple or the mountain, it was never the geographical location uh, that mattered, rather the concepts that were represented by that place. So when Elijah journeys to Sinai, we immediately flash back to Moses, to the burning bush, the Ten Commandments, the revelation of God, his covenant, the golden calf, God's judgment and mercy and redemption and glories. All of that significance is just packed into this mountain in the story. So it's no coincidence that we'll find Elijah here at this mountain now. The length of his journey, 40 days and 40 nights, that's not a coincidence either. I won't get too far into this, but you know Moses spent 40 days on the mountain. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The flood rain lasted for 40 days and 40 nights when God flooded the earth. Um, Jonah's proclamation to Nineveh was that they would be destroyed in 40 days. Jesus then fasts in the wilderness for 40 days. So there's a significance to this, um, and it's a, it's a symbolic significance to the, this, this length of complete testing. So these are, these are intentional hyperlinks, is what I'm getting at. Whether it's where he's going or the length of his journey, these are hyperlinking you right back to the Moses story. But let's get back to Elijah's story. We're at verse 9 now in 1 Kings 19. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. And Yahweh said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served Yahweh, God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So it's interesting, first of all, that God provided the fuel for this journey. Uh, he provided Elijah with the energy to get here, even though it never really says that God told Elijah to come here. So the implication is that it was Elijah himself who was determined to come here to meet with God, and God allowed him to. But now that he's here, Yahweh asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's reply is, is basically to complain again. You know, I've, I've come here to formally file a complaint. I've served you faithfully, not just faithfully, I've served zealously. I've had zeal for you, but the people have broken their covenant again. So it's, it's like the golden calf all over again, and he's Moses, the only one interceding. But he sees himself as the only faithful one left, kind of running around with a target on his back, no less, where people want to kill me. And he's forgotten that there were those hundred prophets, first of all, that Obadiah saved. Um, forgot about that. But Really, it's not just a complaint. I think complaint might be a little bit uh, doing him a disservice because it's really more like he has, in his mind, nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. And he explains his presence here on the mountain by expressing just how discouraged he is. I think it's more of just expressing his discouragement more than a complaint. And there is, I think, a tone of self-pity here which I think we can rightly criticize that, you know, self-pity is, you know, his one little weakness in the story, and I, I doubt any of us would do better in his situation, but we can still acknowledge that self-pity isn't, isn't a good thing. 
But on the other hand, he's just in utter despair. And his response, self-pity aside, his response is still to seek God in the best way he can think to do. And God does not turn him away. He says, come to me. In verse 11, go out and stand before me on the mountain, Yahweh told him. And Elijah stood there. As Elijah stood there, Yahweh passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But Yahweh was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. The voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So again, this language is just so similar to how when God appears to Moses. You know, Yahweh passes by Elijah, and there's this wind and earthquake and fire. So all these mighty, dramatic phenomena, these all in the past have indicated God's presence on Mount Sinai. And yet, it says Yahweh was not in those things. God was present. But his presence was not revealed to Elijah through those loud and spectacular events. His presence was revealed in a whisper. You could say that those things were an indication of God's presence or a response to God's presence, but they were not a communication from the presence of God's person. The communication from God, his answer, his word to Elijah, the personal presence of God was revealed in a whisper. I just think that's so profound. Revelation from God is not always loud or dramatic. It's often quiet, which requires silence, stillness, space. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Literally, that word be still means to let go to release. And in the context of that psalm, it's telling the nations to let go of their conflicts, to stop fighting. It's a command to the forces of chaos to relent so that in the stillness, God would be revealed. It was in the stillness, after all the chaos, that Elijah heard and recognized God's voice. The fact that he wrapped his face up, not during the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but when he heard the whisper, that's significant. You remember Moses was covered by God's hand as he passed by, and Elijah knows that no human can uh, see God's face and live. I think it's in First or Second Timothy. There's a, a verse that says that. So Elijah knows this. He wraps up his face not until he truly sensed God's presence, and it wasn't in all the chaos. It was when he heard that whisper, and he knew that was Yahweh speaking to him. That's just so cool, isn't it? And I'm going to kind of circle back around to this concept because I think dwelling on, on this is just the richest application that we can 
for me anyway, that's it's really what is profound for me in this passage. But I want to just wrap up the little section of this story first because there's still some more dialogue uh, between God and Elijah. Because when God does speak to Elijah, what does he say? I think it's kind of funny because after all that, what God actually says to Elijah is what he already asked him before. It's not really anything particularly new or profound. He just repeats that same question he asked, why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah gives pretty much the exact same answer. He replied again, I have zealously served Yahweh, God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. It's the same exact reason as the first time. It's like he's saying, okay, God, I know you're here, but I still don't understand what's happening. What are you doing? Why am, why am, why am I here is almost uh, the sentiment I get. But this time now, God responds with a command. In verse 15, it says, Then Yahweh told him, Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Yehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Maholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Yehu, and those who escape Yehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So, first of all, I think this response is just a very loving and patient response. He doesn't try to argue with Elijah. He simply renews Elijah's commission and his purpose by giving him this command. It's a little bonus information and to throw him, thrown in to give him some hope. Now, the command has two main parts to it, kind of three. But uh, the first part, with all these names in here, it's, it's, it's essentially a command to execute judgment against Ahab and Jezebel and, and their, um, their palace, their, their house. Uh, we won't get into the specifics of all that, but you'll, you'll see these names coming up, Hazael and Yehu and Elisha, um, coming up later on in the story. God's going to use the king of, uh, of Damascus, of Syria, along with Jehu, who's this military commander in Israel, and Elisha, who's Elijah's successor, they're going to purge the house of Ahab. So he's pronouncing judgment on Ahab. And you can read about it in 2 Kings in chapters 8 through 13. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there that happens. But the bottom line is that God's pronouncing judgment. We might get into that a little bit next week. I'm not sure quite yet. But the second part of this command, it's not really a command but just this fact that's thrown in at the end in verse 18. He says, Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. He's pronouncing judgment, but saying there are 7,000 who I'll spare. And so it's just kind of a very gracious way of correcting Elijah's self-centered, pessimistic way of thinking. Earlier, you know, Elijah had forgotten already about the 100 prophets that Obadiah had saved. But now he learns that there are 7,000 others who remain faithful to Yahweh. 7,000. So, and granted, that's tragically a very small percentage of Israel. Should have been much more. But it's certainly 7,000 is much more than one. <laughs> and it's vastly more than would be necessary to have meaningful fellowship uh, with his brothers and sisters. 
So this is really God's just kind way of saying, no, Elijah, you're not alone. I understand you feel like you're alone, but you're not alone. And it's just a fantastic example of how sometimes, whether it's that we feel alone or we just in some other way don't understand what God's plan could be for us at any given moment in our lives, that we really have a limited perspective and that God is always working in ways and in places and in people that we have no idea about. And now knowing that as a fact doesn't really make the pain or the frustration or the loneliness or the anger or depression just disappear. These are all very real and valid experiences that are a result of living as humans in a corrupted world. But knowing that God is bigger than us and does have a plan does give us hope. And knowing that he does care enough about us to reveal himself to us in intimate ways should bring us some comfort, even if he doesn't always give us the full picture. He doesn't always tell us about the 7,000. But in this case, he, he revealed a tiny bit to Elijah about what he didn't know to encourage him, to give him hope. And one other major component of this whole command, which is kind of tied into the judgment aspect, is how Elijah is going to be passing the mantle to Elisha. And that transition from Elijah to Elisha is going to be the main focus of our time next week. Um, I'll go ahead and read through the last bit of this chapter. It's kind of just a preview into the next part of the story. In verse 19, Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. And then he went with Elijah as his assistant. That's just kind of a preview into next week, I guess, but it's kind of an interesting little interaction. And I wanted to read it just to make the point that Elijah now leaves the mountain of God. And it doesn't really say anything more about his mental or his emotional state here, but I get the sense that he's probably leaving with just a, a being at least somewhat refreshed with a renewed sense of purpose. Now, that's clearly not the point because it doesn't say, and if it were, were important, it would specify, but I like to think anyway that he was encouraged by this encounter with God because I'm encouraged by this encounter with God. Uh, so it just it makes me feel better, I guess, to think that he was encouraged. In reality, he could have still been deeply depressed. We don't know. Uh, but either way, he did exactly what God told him to do. He he renewed, he took on the commission that God gave him, and that's really what matters in the end. But for now, I'd like to just, again, circle back to that encounter with Yahweh and just dwell on the nature of God's revelation in that moment. How often do we look for glorious, grand gestures from God when he's waiting for us in the tiny cracks of the small spaces of silence and stillness in our lives? And how often do those cracks end up disappearing completely when our lives become enveloped in chaos and busyness and noise? It's often not in the grand and impressive displays of power in which we truly and personally find God, but 
in our most broken and vulnerable moments where we are receptive and humble enough and still enough to hear God's gentle whisper and to know that we're not alone. Now, I'd like to end our time here by sharing with you something that is, is written by someone that I know, um, never a close friend to her, but she was an acquaintance in college. Ellie, my wife, even knows her from certain um, circles in Ohio that they were both a part of. Um, her name is, is Jane Markowski. Someone fell asleep. Um, she's a singer. She goes by the name of Nightbird uh, when she's on stage. That's her stage name. And she was recently got a little bit famous. She was kind of brought into the spotlight because she appeared on America's Got Talent. Um, and she got famous not just because she's a great singer and she, she made it through, uh, and this was just like a month ago, if that, but because of her story and her attitude and her message, people really, she, she went viral, if you will. And I just want to read you one of her blog posts because so much of it just seems to resonate with Elijah's story, um, but, you know, from someone who's, who's living her own story today. And now, you know, please realize this isn't a theological um, paper. You know, I'm not presenting this as doctrinal thesis. This isn't scripture. This is just her thoughts and, and her processing her experiences. Um, but she processes them in a very relatable and vulnerable and powerful way. She's a very good writer, and it's, it's moving to me. It's poetic. I know it's just not just me, and because I know her, and the, because the last time I saw her, she was, you know, perfectly healthy. Um, because other people are being moved by her story as well. Um, but again, I don't know if she and I would agree on finer points of theology. That's not the point. Um, she probably wouldn't care. Uh, but I do think that she communicates beautifully the truth of how God often meets us at our lowest. And I took this directly from her blog. I can put a link to it. Or, and I, that's, that's her blog uh, website there. This is, this is Jane's words. I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer, and for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped up against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say, I just never learned the lesson, or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. 
I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God, for I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad, too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. And I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promises to break, bake fresh for me each morning. Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees. In my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there, even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. It's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. I don't know if you're as moved by that as I am, but I think it's very powerful, very poetic. And Jane has every reason to be depressed, to be consumed with self-pity. But And today, so you know, she's still fighting cancer throughout her whole body. And she says that doctors gave her a 2% chance of survival. And yet she chooses not to be defined by the bad things that happened to her. When she walked out on the stage in front of millions of people, she radiated joy 
she's not defined by the bad things that happen to her, but by the relationship she has with God. And it's a relationship in which she wrestles and she struggles to understand God. But I truly believe that God invites us to come to him with those thoughts. And ultimately, that if we're willing to listen, he will reveal himself to us. Though it may be in the most unexpected or even uncomfortable of ways, and he might not give us all the answers we want. But I'll ask you this again. How often do we look for glorious and grand gestures from God when he's waiting for us in tiny cracks, small spaces of silence and stillness in our lives? And how often do those, even those cracks disappear completely when our lives become enveloped in chaos and busyness and noise? It's often not in grand and impressive displays of power in which we truly personally find God, but in our most broken and vulnerable moments where we are finally receptive and humble enough to hear God's gentle whisper. Know that we're not alone. Father, I, I come to you this morning, first of all, just humbled by testimony of my friend Jane, and I just thank you for giving her the, the gift of writing and communicating her experience in this way. I pray that you would encourage her and um, strengthen her in her faith and her relationship with you. And I just pray that during this time when her voice has reached millions of people, that her story and her voice would bring glory to you and bring encouragement to many who have lost hope. And I thank you for the story of Elijah and for the powerful way in which you ministered to him and his weakness and and you revealed yourself to him in his distress, not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but in a still small whisper. I know that for myself and probably many of us here, that we just we tend to get caught up in the busyness and the chaos. And we love to see you do mighty and powerful things, and it's awesome when you do that. But we're also reminded today that. Sometimes you want to speak to us intimately and softly in the stillness and the quiet. So I'm sorry, God, for not being still, not being quiet, or not even just listening for you more often. And last week, I, I stood here and marveled that I can boldly claim, claim to, to stand in your presence. And we know that this is true, that we stand in your presence. But how often do we ignore you? So, God, I just pray that you would help us to, to hear your voice, to know your voice, to know when you are speaking to us, to recognize your presence. And that our response to just be worship in, in everything that we do, um, so that your name would be represented well by our lives. And let your spirit give us the strength and the, the boldness and the courage to do whatever it is you're calling us to do each day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Thanks for sticking with me through that. I know it was a little bit longer and it's very hot. So <laughs> thank you. Stay hydrated. Stay cool. Have a great day.